ready for me to start there, Kim? Okay. Welcome everybody. It's Lawrence Saavedra with uh, APD's uh, CIU unit. Uh, welcome to Project ECHO, um, the CIT Knowledge Network. Um, we have a guest speaker today, um, James Fairfax Colombo. We'll get to him in just a second. I'm gonna do some introductions and then we'll do a case and then we will hand it over to James. Um, so I'll start with introductions. Um, I'll start with the, the hub. Um, we have our uh, CIT ECHO um, coordinator, uh, Kim. Hi everybody, I'm Kim McManus. I'm the project coordinator for CIT ECHO. We have uh, Dr. Nancy Martin. Hi everybody, Nancy Martin, Presbyterian Psychiatry. Uh, Dr. Martin Gonzalez. Hi, Martin Gonzalez with UNM Psychiatry. Uh, Niels Rosenbaum. Hi, Niels Rosenbaum, CIU Psychiatrist. Um, Detective Rob Garnan. Hi, everyone. Rob Garnan with the Crisis Intervention Unit. We have also with us um, more detectives from CIU. Um, Albert. Hello, Albert Crisis Intervention Unit. Uh, we have uh, Detective Bailey. Don't believe she has a microphone. Detective Dave Padilla. Um, Detective Shannon Mera. Hello, Detective Shannon Mera, APDCIU. We have uh, Detective Donna Richter with us. I don't believe she has a mic. Um, Detective Terry Dye. I also believe he does not have a mic. Then um, we have uh, some guests from out of state. Tony Lockhart. Hi there, Tony Lockhart from up in uh, Seattle area, King County Sheriff's Office. Nice to have you, thank you. We have uh, Officer Duran Cascala. Duran Cascala, Albuquerque Police Department. We have uh, Deborah Whalen from, I uh, believe she's from SOD's uh, CNT. Hi, yes, I'm uh, the Behavioral Health Clinician with um, the Crisis Negotiation Team, so I'm part of the Special Operations Division. And I just started on September 14th. It's a brand new position for Thank APD. So I'm glad to be here. Thank you. We have Mike Drugan. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm with the DuPage County Sheriff's Office in Illinois, just outside of Chicago. Welcome. Nice to have you. Thank you. We have, we have retired um, under sheriff, was it Randy Sanchez? <laughs> Uh, retired Major Randy Sanchez, Rear Ruby County Sheriff's Office. Thanks, Louis. <laughs> we have, uh, and I, I'm going to butcher this name, Brown Nesser. Bronwyn Nesser, hi. Yeah, I'm the um, Forensic Psychology Postdoc Fellow at University of New Mexico. Welcome. Nice to have you here. We have Officer Tom Stoddard. Not sure if he has a mic or not. He's with APD. We have Luis Hernandez, who I believe is with 
probation and parole. Not sure if he has no mic or camera. We have Officer Joshua Lloyd with APD. Good afternoon, Officer Joshua Lloyd, APD. We have uh, Stefan Baez. I know I always say that wrong. I'm so sorry. Stefan Baez, Sergeant with the Addison Police Department in Illinois. Oh, I said it right for once. You did. You got it. Go you got it that time. <laughs> Taking me long enough. Sorry about that, sir. <laughs> That's all right. Um, we have Leah, and I thought Leah was with probation and parole, but I may be wrong. Or she might have chatted in, and, and I'm there. It's moving so fast, can't see it. Um, and I hope I didn't miss anyone else. I'm looking to see if I missed anyone else. Um, I'm going to let our uh, speaker introduce himself after the case so we can get into a little bit more of who he is. But uh, we're going to do a case study now. Um, and we have Detective Albert Romero with our crisis intervention unit um, that will um, uh, brief us on the case and then we can help him. Hello, Detective Albert Romero with the Crisis Intervention Unit with Albuquerque Police Department. Um, so I have a consumer who is 40 years old and is being diagnosed with ADHD, uh, bipolar, um, psychosis with possibly it's been meth-induced. Um, so how I got him through my caseload was a uh, call was dispatched to his house because um, he, his mom called in saying he was having uh, behavioral health um, issues. So he ended up um, telling mom or destroying stuff inside his house, um, telling his mom officers were um, fake cops and they were out to kill him. Um, he was patient zero and was spitting around. And he ended up getting um, transported to, I believe it was UNMH at the time. Um, so, so far his only um, support would be from his mother that called and he's, um, she's elderly, um, lives alone in a, I think it's like a one, two bedroom apartment, small apartment. Um, and, um, so that's pretty much his um, only support that I believe that he has. Um, he was arrested again for another incident where a certificate of evaluation was written for him. Um, he, same thing, he started destroying property inside his mom's um, apartment rental and ended up turning on the water inside the apartment and which mom was called because she was staying at a hotel because she didn't feel safe with him. Neighbors called her and were, let her, let, were letting her know what was going on. So um, certificate evaluation was written. Um, officers go out there to serve the certificate evaluation. Um, they noticed um, the apartment on the outside windows being busted. They ended up catching him outside in the backyard. Um, with their interaction with him, he ends up swinging a metal pole, ends up hitting one of the officers in the hand, um, and they ended up having to use force to get him into custody. Um, so he's been at MDC 
for quite some time. I believe the last time I checked, he was still at MDC. Um, so I guess my question for the network would be, um, how do we make sure consumers who are at MDC or are taken to MDC, how do they stay connected with the resources when they get out? Okay, is there, um, um, which doctor is gonna be helping me with this one? Okay, and so just a, a quick recap. So we have a 40 year old gentleman with a history of bipolar uh, affective disorder with psychosis, ADHD, um, and his psychosis is possibly meth-induced, initially connected to uh, CIT secondary to behavioral uh, issue calls from his mother where he was destroying property, had a lot of paranoid uh, delusions, uh, ultimately was taken uh, to PES on one occasion. Second occasion, uh, similar call out, ultimately he uh, struck an officer with a metal pole, obtaining a charge, um, and he is currently in MDC. And so our question for the network is, how do we make sure these consumers who are at MDC or recently discharged stay connected to resources? Anything I missed, uh, Detective Romero? No, that sums it up perfectly. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a cool clarifying question? Uh, Detective Romero, do you uh, where is he going to stay when he gets out of jail? I, I, is his mom still in the picture, or is she going to be out of the picture? Is he going to have a hard time getting housing? So I believe you probably have a hard time getting housing. Um, mom ended up having to get a restraining order against him um, because the landlord said if she doesn't get a restraining order he was gonna end up evicting her out of the apartment complex. So he ended up getting served with a, with a restraining order not to return. So as far as when he gets out, no telling where he's gonna go um, or what his support is gonna be after he gets out. Okay, thank you. Do you also, do you know if he's med compliant? As far as the last um, interaction with him when we did a home visit, he was uh, med compliant, or that's what he told us anyway. He had um, doctor's appointments, follow-ups, and was looking for a therapist at the time. Also, there's a question from the group of, in the chat asking if uh, he is on any kind of supervised um, probation. Um, supervised probation, I have, I'm not too sure. He's still at MDC. Okay, thank you. And for those who don't are from out of state, our MDC is the Metropolitan Detention Center. Hey, Albert, um, this is Detective Cassandra Bailey with the Crisis Intervention Unit. I, um, I, not that I hate to keep throwing this out there, but um, AOT isn't the necessarily the response for everyone, but they've been a huge help for me with my consumers out there that are, um, that have a diagnosed mental illness and um, are currently like in the jail system. So right now I have two consumers that are currently at MDC 
and I was able to um, fill out the AOT referral. You, and I'm sure his mother would be willing to be the petitioner. <clears throat> Just keep in mind, you can't, um, you can't be the petitioner. She would have to um, be willing to do that, which it sounds like she would. And then um, uh, if you can co contact Max Kaufman, he's the public defender um, that works with the, you know, mental health court um, and tell him I'm trying to expedite this a referral. He's really good with helping with all that. But if you get the referral done today, I did a referral yesterday and I got, they contacted me first thing this morning. Um, so it gives them the opportunity to go to MDC and do an evaluation there. But I've had a lot of success thus far with AOT and my consumers. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Casey. And for those of you that don't know, AOT is the assisted outpatient uh, treatment. Um, it's it's uh, fairly new to Albuquerque, but it is it is here. Um, we also had a recommendation in the chat. Um, said. Um, if, if asked if he might be eligible for the LEAD program, and if he is, they can meet him at the reintegration center or reentry center. Um, um, if you have that, you can make a referral to it. Um, so this is Jan Surfax Colombo speaking. I'm a assistant professor at UNM, and, and I just want to second what um, Officer Bailey said, um, specifically the part about. It, um, you know, AOT being able to meet with him in the context of MDC. I think it's very easy to lose people to follow up when there's no pre-existing relationship um, or when there's no warm handoff. So sort of knowing who might be a treatment provider for him beforehand and having met them ahead of time, um, I think you're going to get a lot more, um, sort of a lot more bang for the buck than if you let somebody leave and then think that they might follow up with their appointments. And then the other thing that I, I think is always helpful is, and it's hard because, because of HIPAA, but um, information sharing, right? Like being able to check in and because sometimes you don't know that somebody's not been going to treatment until they pop up at MDC again. Um, versus if you have some idea of somebody's being compliant, at least you can have somebody follow up like, hey, what's going on? Like troubleshoot some issues. Maybe someone doesn't have transportation. Um, maybe there's no buy-in from you know, working with the treatment staff there, but they have somebody who can vouch, who would sort of be able to say like, oh, hey, you should give these guys another shot, um, maybe a peer support worker or something like that. So I definitely think making sure there's like the continuity is, is key. Um, but if you sort of expect people to go to services, like to have a referral to services and to go to them after they leave MDC, I feel like that's where people start to slip through the cracks. It's very easy to, head there and end up somewhere else. Thank you, Doug. Is, is there, are there any other questions before we move completely over to uh, recommendations? I have one, since he's newly homeless, would he be a good client to refer to HopeWorks and Street Connect, um, at least to begin treatment and while well, the AOT referrals being processed, um, that way he has an established relationship with this team? Does that have to be voluntary? And Albert, do you think he is, have you met with him to see whether or not he'd volunteer, voluntarily help um, be part of his treatment? 
Um, just from the last contact we had with him, um, just saying that he wanted help, I guess, the last time we were with him. So it's possible that he'd want yeah. the help for it. So good, another good resource to follow up with. So yes, that would be a good resource. Thank you, Dr. Martin. Any other questions or um, recommendations for Detective Romero? I just want to follow up on what Dr. Gonzalez said, because I think it's a great point. And it's often like a pick your battles type situation where somebody might be completely on board with ongoing psychiatric treatment, but most people want housing assistance or something like that. And then once their relationship is established there, it's a lot, and you notice some changes, it's a lot easier to move somebody towards, well, hey, what about, how about giving this a try? So, I mean, I think that's an excellent, like excellent, excellent um, suggestion is to sort of start on something that you know you can ally with, uh, with this person with and then maybe use that as sort of your foot in the door to move towards the other things. Thank you, doctor. Um, um, I have a recommendation of my own and that would be to kind of like almost the shotgun effect of having all these different things. Everybody's been making good um, recommendations. Um, just making sure that he has all those options because one might work for him, whereas, you know, um, he, but he needs to be able to choose from, from the group. I would actually also, um, in, um, when uh, Leah brought up, is he on probation or, or supervised? He probably is going to be um, after he's um, discharged. And so it might um, help to get in concert with that just in case you need the leverage to push him, say he doesn't pick from one of these options you're giving him, maybe the leverage from that might help you um, get into a program. I would use that as the last ditch effort, but it can't hurt to use that as leverage if he's not going to comply with any of these other things. Um, we have one more in the chat. How would the crisis stabilization continuum project work in this instance? Is it still in policy? Um, and she says, sorry, she's new in the state. And I don't, does any, can I, does anyone have any information on the crisis stabilization project? Because I don't. Yeah, I, we're not new to the state, but I've, I, that's the first time I've ever heard something put that way. Um, sorry. Um, we can do some research on it though, ma'am, and we can try to um, figure out what that exactly is. Are there any? Yeah, it's, it's from the Behavioral Health Initiative um, okay. through Bernalillo County. Um, it looks like it funds um, projects through MDC and UNM. It looks like they're working on a crisis stabilization continuum, which has been used in other states, which is basically exactly like, it's exactly what we're talking about, which is how do we have that continuum of care? Like what happens if this happens in the community, you have a provider in the community, then you're detained, then you're back in the community. How do you stay connected to all of that? And I think that that project, um, it's been used in California, um, I think in a few other states and it's really successful. So either it's really exciting that that's in the works and policy or um, it didn't work and I'm just spouting out now. <laughs> No, I'm sure it's something that's probably they're working on. They've, we've always had a very strong relationship with MDC and that they, they kind of bridge people to care when they can, um, leave them with prescriptions, you know what I mean, so that they can get their meds when they come out into the community. They have really good discharge planners that we've worked in the past that have tried to 
you know, give them, get them into um, the resources they need to when they first exit the jail. It's just um, a lot of, it's, it's sad to say, it's really hard for people that have left the jail to navigate the system sometimes. So even though they've been given scripts and they've given been given and made appointments, they don't navigate them very well. And so then we end up having issues. And, and so it's nice to, the reentry center should be able to help a lot with that. Okay, so are there any other recommendations or thoughts on this case before we move along? Okay, um, thank you very much, Albert, for bringing that. Um, we'll go ahead and type up the recommendations that were um, brought up today, and they'll be emailed to you so that it can help you with the consumer. Um, and you're more than welcome to come back at any point and ask more questions and let us know if things are working or not working so that we can try to help you through this. Okay, so um, that being said now, we're gonna move along. Um, like I said, we have a guest speaker, James Fairfax Colombo, um, and he is going to, and I'm gonna let him introduce his topic. Is, so go ahead, James. Um, so hi, my name is James Fairfax Colombo. I'm an assistant professor at University of New Mexico in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Um, it's my first year here. Uh, before that, I was um, at a postdoc at Bridgewater State Hospital in Massachusetts. It's a maximum security forensic hospital. Um, before that, I was on internship at, in uh, Maryland, Springfield Hospital Center, so another state uh, psychiatric hospital with largely a forensic population. Um, I did my graduate training at Drexel University, and uh, there I really developed sort of broad forensic psychology interests. So, I mean, I really like doing forensic assessment, forensic evaluation, answering questions for the court. Um, but one of my other passions is sort of risk assessment, risk reduction, and reentry. Um, it's something I really want to incorporate into my career here in New Mexico, and I think there's a big need for it. Um, and it's just a topic I feel very, very passionately about. So I'm, I'm excited to talk to you guys about criminal records, but most importantly, some of the collateral consequences that can come from them um, that can sort of undermine reentry efforts. And I want to preface this before I share my screen by saying this is not a presentation where I'm going to say people shouldn't be convicted of crimes, right? I absolutely don't think that. I think there is a, a big role for the criminal justice system in the United States. My passion is always sort of if we're going to send somebody through the penal system, like I don't want to see them end up back in the penal system. So sort of where are the gaps where we get these repeat offenders as opposed to somebody who is sort of one and done, gets the things that they need to move forward in life. Um, and so the collateral consequences really do play into that. So I'm gonna share my screen and um, let me know if you guys can, so can everybody see that okay? Okay. Yes, it's good. All right, perfect. And, and I'm happy to answer questions throughout um, or save them for the end. I'm a pretty informal presenter. I'm very conversational. You might notice a lot of pictures and memes. I try to keep things entertaining. Um, hopefully that bodes well, because I think I'm doing like five or six presentations. So it, it would really stink if you guys thought I was super boring, because <laughs> there'd be four more of these after this. Um, but I, I think I've sort of uh, figured out a good presentation style. Um, so, you know, I always like to give a disclaimer. So this is a topic I'm really passionate about, but it's not something I'm getting paid to talk about or anything like that. So no conflicts of interest to disclose. 
So I've got four learning objectives for this talk. Uh, first, I want to provide an overview of the principles of punishment, right? Not every principle of punishment out there, but four of the big ones. Um, just to sort of give some background as to, you know, why does the criminal justice system even exist? And sort of what are we trying to accomplish when we have people go through it? Then I want to discuss criminal history, so criminal records in the context of risk assessment, right? So as a forensic psychologist, if I'm thinking about recidivism risk or violence risk, how does criminal history play into that? And how much of the picture does it really explain? Or what are the other things that we also need to be focusing on? Then I want to review some of the collateral consequences of criminal conviction. So I, I'm going to go into five big ones. Um, and then we'll sort of talk about some ideas for moving forward. So I'll highlight some of the ways that I think maybe it doesn't comport with principles of punishment, that it undermines um, re-entry efforts, and some of the recent policy that has, you know, that has come out that is trying to mitigate the impact of collateral consequences and sort of what we could do going forward. Um, but importantly, I, I would like feedback um, from you guys, number one, in terms of what you think could be different, how you've noticed some of this stuff in your own work, um, but also, you know, if I could use you guys as a brainstorming session for other things that I might advocate for, um, I will give you, whoever comes up with ideas, I'll give them credit in whatever I end up publishing in the future. Um, I really got interested in the topic of criminal records when I was at Drexel. So we have a, a clinic, it's called Philadelphia Lawyers for Social Equity, and they have a criminal record expungement project clinic there. And the whole idea was, you know, working to help people clean up their records, expunge what things they could. Uh, in Pennsylvania, you have sort of a partial expungement as well, which is called a redaction. So redact their records and just get things to look a little bit better for people. Um, it was very adversarial when I was there, like you would go through a hearing and it, you really had to fight it out. Um, since I've left, they have a new DA who has basically made it a policy not to expose, uh, not to oppose expungements. So sort of some interesting, um, some interesting movement in that direction. I am also somebody who is very cognizant of unintended consequences of policies and sort of always needing to, to work towards the middle ground. Um, so I also like to present to police officers because I think it gives a, a unique perspective that sometimes psychologists aren't always um, eager to hear unless you're the type of psychologist who is interested in um, police psychology issues. So. I think this is gonna be a great audience to give this talk to and um, really excited to, to be invited. So thank you so much. So starting off with some of the principles of punishment, I'm gonna review four, um, but there's sort of two quotes I wanted to just put on the screen really quick to give us some context for thinking about this. So one quote is, unless criminal penalties serve valid purposes, they impose useless costs and hardship, even when the purposes are valid, punishment may be limited by moral values or practical concerns. So there's this idea that, um, you know, if you're gonna punish, punish for a reason, and even if you do have a reason, there's other things that you might need to take into consideration. I also wanted to talk a little bit about this quote that sort of, I think exemplifies the trajectory of, of our focus in the American justice system. So maybe up until, the 1970s, rehabilitation was a, a central defense goal of the American criminal justice system. Um, you know, I spent so much time in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia has this very famous uh, prison called Eastern State Penitentiary, and it's sort of the, the model for the penitentiary system throughout the world. And if you ever go to there, so they, it's two things. One, it's this cool museum 
It's also this really cool haunted house around Halloween time, but it's super crowded. Um, but it, it's like a, a preserved room and it's really, really interesting for anybody who's interested in the history of punishment. But it was originally designed, you know, individuals were essentially in solitary confinement. They would sit in, in their cell for a year or two. And the idea was they were reflecting on what they had done and that would lead to, to reform. So we now know that solitary confinement definitely doesn't do that. and has a lot of negative psychological consequences. But the idea at that time was focused on rehabilitation. How do we rehabilitate someone? Will we give them time to reflect on their action? Uh, more recently, sort of in the late 20th century, we started focusing more on crime control. And we started to emphasize incapacitation, so taking people out of society, and deterrence. How do we send a message that this won't be accepted? So I'll start off with deterrence. This is what we call like a utilitarian principle of punishment. And it's this idea that punishment can help prevent future crime. Now, when you think about deterrence, you think about it from two perspectives. One is specific deterrence. So this is specific to that person. If we punish this person, they won't do this thing again. There's also the idea of general deterrence, which is sort of using somebody as an example for everybody else. So, hey, if, they, if we see this person get punished, this is going to prevent other people from wanting to do the same thing. Now, the important thing about deterrence theory is that it is a perceptual theory, right? And it tends to focus on three things how swift punishment is, how certain it is, and how severe it is. So if you don't have, if you have punishment that takes a really long time to dole out, if it's not very certain that someone's gonna get punished if they do a bad action, and if the, the punishment isn't severe enough, it's not enough to deter crime. Um, <clears throat> another common principle of punishment, so there's sort of two big ones, which are deterrence and retribution, but I'll talk about two other ones as well. Um, so retribution is sort of, moral blameworthiness, right? You give, you give punishment that is proportional to moral blameworthiness. And it's sort of this idea of a just desserts theory, right? Like you have some moral debt to society, which you need, now need to pay. And when you punish somebody according to retribution, you think about two things. Number one, what is the magnitude of the harm? So what did you do to a person, to society, but then also culpability, right? What was your mind state? So I often think about this when I think about diversion and insanity. So when you think about um, diversionary courts, right, we're not saying that, hey, somebody should get off scot-free because they happen to have a substance abuse problem or happen to have a mental health problem. But what we're saying is, hey, like we want some mechanism to make sure that we can keep an eye on somebody, but we realize that they have treatment needs that, would, that probably contributed to this behavior, right? So instead of sending somebody to jail, we say, look, let's try treatment first. Um, and diversion happens at all, all, um, all points in the criminal justice system. You know, before there's a formal record, after a conviction, you know, there's a whole bunch of different models. I also think about this with the insanity defense, right? If somebody was not in control of their actions, if somebody couldn't appreciate what was happening because they were mentally ill, we don't view them the same way as somebody who didn't have their issues, right? We don't sentence them to prison, we say, hey, we realize that you did this thing, but we're gonna send you to a hospital because we understand you need treatment. So that's sort of the moral blameworthiness um, idea at play. Another principle of punishment that's important is incapacitation. So this is the idea of removing an individual from society or restricting their liberties in some way to prevent future crime. And it's sort of this idea of interrupting a criminal career or taking opportunities for crime away. Um, so most often you see this when somebody's incarcerated, right? That's the idea, like, hey, we removed them from society. 
but it could also be probation or any type of supervision. Hey, we're checking in on this person to make sure they don't have opportunities to, uh, to offend. And the last one I'll talk about is rehabilitation. So this is the idea that you're focusing on altering an individual's future behavior. And it's typically via some type of treatment service or wraparound service. And it's this idea that you can identify some needs where if those needs were addressed, this person might not offend again. Now, an important thing to think about is this doesn't have to go, this doesn't have to mean that you don't put somebody in jail, that you don't put somebody on probation. It sort of goes hand in hand with imposing something, right? So it can be a focus of incarceration. Hey, we give people programming when they're in jail. So maybe they do some job training, maybe they're doing uh, 12 step, maybe they have um, you know, some type of cognitive behavioral therapy while they're uh, incarcerated, or it can be in lieu of incarceration. So, hey, instead of sending you to jail, we're gonna send you to treatment. So hopefully that gives some backdrop for why it is that we have the criminal justice system and why we want people to go through it. Um, and now I wanna talk quickly about what criminal records are. So there's sort of two converging pathways to a conviction. One is via a trial. So, you know, you have a constitutional right to both a speedy and a public trial by an impartial jury. Um, you can't be compelled to self-incriminate, so nobody can force you to plead guilty. And at a trial, you have the right to be represented by counsel. That convictions can be obtained by trial, but in the US, it's the minority of convictions, right? Um, more commonly, people are convicted via a guilty plea, typically via a plea agreement or a plea bargain. So that's this idea that, hey, you don't have a trial because you've admitted to guilt, um, but we're giving you something in return for, for acknowledging that you're culpable. So maybe that's probation, maybe you plead to a lesser charge, maybe it's a lesser sentence, and that represents upwards of 95% of convictions um, in the United States. Now, uh, there's a lot of reasons why we have guilty pleas. It's sort of, particularly when we have an overburdened system, it's sort of much more efficient. Um, but not going through the trial process does cast some doubt on the validity of convictions, right? What if somebody pleads to something they weren't actually culpable for? We see that with, you know, there's a, a lot of focus on the Innocence Project. We see that all the time. Um, but even if it, it might even be something that somebody's pleading guilty to a slightly different set of circumstances than is actually true. So you do lose some of the, the fact-finding and the truth-finding um, process that we have in a trial if you take a, uh, a plea bargain. But those are sort of the two converging pathways to a criminal conviction. And you'll notice that all of these rap sheets that are coming up are from um, the movie Suicide Squad. So when you think of a criminal record, really what it is is a compilation of an individual's history of arrest and criminal dispositions. And it's recorded at multiple levels. So it could be the local level, the state level, and the federal level. Importantly, um, criminal records contain what we call both non-conviction data and conviction data. Now, the reason that's important is conviction data makes sense, right? You were actually found guilty of something that we should, and we should hold you accountable for that. But non-conviction data, you know, if you're found not guilty, it's still part of your criminal record, right? There's still some documentation that you were accused of something. So whereas we might, might not have found you guilty in criminal court, um, you know, there's still the court of public opinion and, and stigma and all those things. So I always think it's important to emphasize that criminal records aren't just focused on convictions, they also contain your non-conviction data. Now we utilize criminal records at multiple points in the criminal justice process, right? We might use it in setting bail, trying to figure out if somebody's a risk to the community, 
if they have really bad charges, if they might be a flight risk. Um, they use it to determine what plea offers are appropriate, right? Like, well, look, with somebody with this history, I can't let them plead to this charge, or I can't agree to this amount of time. And that's also used at sentencing, right? If you're a repeat offender, you're more likely to get a severe sentence. Criminal records are often accessible to the public. Sometimes it's for a fee, so you might pay the state police, or you might pay the FBI, or, or somebody like that to, to generate a record, particularly if you're doing a background check. But sometimes they're available for free. So you know, New Mexico has New Mexico case case course. Excuse me, course case lookup, so the public can look and see um, somebody's criminal record there. Pennsylvania, where I'm from, has a similar thing. Um, and again, it's a documentation not only of what people have been convicted of, but just any case that they might have come across. So aside from consulting them in the criminal justice system, we consult criminal records all the time outside of the criminal justice system. So you often have to answer questions about a criminal background when you're being vetted for employment, um, if you're applying for some type of occupational license, maybe if you're applying for public benefits. Now, not all criminal records impact those things, but you can think of certain charges that might, particularly drug charges. So I want to give some current context to the proliferation of cr criminal records in the U.S. So since the inception of the war on drugs, the rate of incarceration in the U.S. has uh, you know, dramatically increased, right? It's more than quadrupled. Um, it's a presentation for another day how we want to approach drug crime. But those are just the statistics, right? Like more people get arrested now than, than used to. Um, each year, there's over 18 million prosecutions in the United States. At any given time in the US, any given year, there's over 2 million Americans incarcerated and 4 million Americans on probation or parole, and upwards of 85 million Americans possess criminal records. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody has aggravated assault, murder, drug charges, right? Criminal records contain all sorts of different things like summary offenses or petty misdemeanors and those things. But upwards of 85 million people have some type of documentation of um, criminal behavior. Now, this tends to disproportionately affect individuals of minority backgrounds and individuals who might have a mental illness history, right? Like they're disproportionately represented in the justice system. So if you're somebody who's social justice focused, that's something that might be alarming to you, right? And that's beyond the scope of, of this talk, but it does tend to have disproportionate impact on certain groups of people. Now, I want to talk a little bit about how we use criminal records, like how I might use them as a forensic psychologist if I'm thinking about risk assessment. So in forensic psychology, there's sort of two predominant approaches to risk assessment. There's the actuarial approach, and that's really statistical in nature. So this is the idea that you take a bunch of data, you put it through an algorithm, and it spits out the odds that somebody is going to offend. Um, those types of approaches were designed because we found out that if you just leave it to the clinical judgment of psychologists, like a lot of times they get it wrong. So we were trying to find some way to um, be more precise and more accurate in our, in our estimates and to take some discretion away from the psychologist. And so in most of these actuarial equations, criminal record play or criminal history plays a big role. People got concerned over the idea of the actuarial approach because it didn't necessarily account for individual differences. It, it's sort of all based on this idea of this, of this average, right? Which may or may not represent the individual in front of you. So because of pushback on that, we now have another approach that's viable called the um, structured professional judgment approach. And so this is the idea that we identify risk factors that predict crime 
and we know if they're there or not, and we know if they might be relevant for this individual or not. And we use that to sort of inform a risk estimate, but it's not spitting out an exact number. There's also some sort of hybrid, um, hybrid instruments. So one of these is an instrument that I really like called the level of service case management inventory, where it will spit out like a statistical prediction. You know, if you have, if you score a 30, there's a 65% chance that you're going to recidivate within a year, right? But based on personal strengths of that individual or some other things, the clinician can sort of adjust their risk estimate. So maybe I say, well, this, this guy's got a lot of protective factors. So I, I don't think his risk is very high. I might bump it down to high. Now, looking at somebody's criminal history is an important component, both of an actuarial approach and a structured professional judgment approach. And this is based on the idea that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior, right? So people will rail against criminal records as not telling the whole story, but the fact of the matter is that, you know, future behavior is predicted by past behavior. And it is a, an empirically derived risk factor that if somebody offended before, they're more likely than, some, than somebody who hasn't offended to offend again. But I do want to put that in context. So there are two types of risk factors that I tend to think about. There's static risk factors and those that are, they're not amenable to intervention, right? Things that you can't change. So things like your criminal history, right? Once you get convicted of something or accused of something, it's there forever. Another static risk factor is age at first offense, right? So if you offend when you're younger, you tend to have worse outcomes. Um, other things, you know, people might debate this, but uh, often biological sex is correlated with, with crime where, you know, males are more likely to be arrested than females. But then there's other types of risk factors that are changeable. We call those dynamic risk factors. So they're amenable to intervention. So these are things like being unemployed, having a substance use problem, um, having a lot of relationships with individuals who have criminal justice involvement, right? All things that can be changed through some type of effort. Now, the reason I'm putting that in context is because when we think about the eight major risk domains that predict criminal behavior, criminal history is just one of them. And in fact, it's the only real static risk domain, the only real risk domain that can't change. And if you think about the other eight, you know, you have education and employment problems, right? Somebody, somebody could go back to high school, not go back to high school, but get their GED, go back to college, get additional education, right? Um, employment, if somebody doesn't have a job, we can try to get them a job. You have family and marital, right? So this is the idea of social support. So do you have good relationships with your family? Um, does your family have a criminal history? How closely are you associating with those individuals? Another domain is leisure and recreation. And so this is sort of the idea that I, idle hands are the devil's workshop. So the more things you have to structure your time, and education and employment sort of fit into this category too, the more, the more time you have that is structured, the less time you have to get into trouble. Substance abuse is a big one. Probably one of the biggest predictors of violence is substance abuse. So if somebody has a substance abuse problem, can we get them help? Um, and then, you know, how long have they been clean? Things like that. Criminal companions is another big one. So what does your peer group look like? Are you friend, friends and acquaintances with a lot of individuals with criminal records? On the other side, do you have a lot of friends who are really good influences on you? What we call antisocial cognitions, right? So how do you justify criminal behavior? Is it sort of like an ends justify the means thing? Um, 
do you think it's okay if somebody wrongs you that you wrong them back, things like that. And then the last thing is antisocial patterns. So this is sort of a blend of um, static and dynamic, but throughout your life, do you have a history of ending up in problems? So problematic situations. So history of arrests, history of probation violations, history of institutional infractions, um, things like that. So in summary, one of the things I wanna say about criminal history, and I, I just made this point before, it is, it is an empirically derived risk factor for criminal behavior. There's no denying that. Um, so people can try to minimize it all they want, but it, it is associated with criminal behavior. But the important thing to consider is it's just one of many risk factors that are there that you have to think about. And often, if you just look at a criminal record, you get very little context to that record. It's not telling you the veracity of the conviction. So did, you know, if you took a plea bargain, are you, actually, are you pleading to what actually happened or are you pleading to something slightly different? It doesn't tell you if you got there via a trial versus a plea bargain, um, which I think is important because it shows some degree of um, acceptance for something that you did and maybe some remorse. Um, it doesn't talk about some of the contributors to your arrest. So what are the other risk factors that were there and how do they interact with, with things? Are you somebody who only uh, gets arrested when you are under the influence? Like things like that. So it doesn't give context to who the individual is. And another big thing that you need to think about all the time when you're doing risk assessment is that we can reduce recidivism risk and violence risk if we address some of those dynamic needs, right? So in that sense, criminal history does not tell the whole story. Um, and these are just sort of two examples of how that might come, uh, might come into play. So, you know, even in the absence of treatment for dynamic risk factors, there are two major times in life when crime goes down. You know, when people start to age out of adolescence and become adults and mature a little bit, crime tends to go down a lot. Um, that's usually attributed to sort of developmental maturity. And then there's this other idea that, you know, when you get to sort of your late 40s and 50s, you just get too tired to do that type of stuff. So there's another big bump in the age crime curve. Um, and actually, I included this good place. I just like binge watched this over the weekend. Um, but the good place is predicated on this idea that you know, you might have done bad things in the past, but that doesn't mean there's not opportunity to redeem yourself. And so that's one of the important things with criminal records is the documentation of who you were in the past, but it might not be representative of who you are currently or who you could be in the future. So now I want to shift to collateral consequences, right? So there's a, there's a lot of focus on criminal records and what that means for somebody's morality, their recidivism, recidivism risk, and all that type of stuff. Um, but as I just sort of illustrated, there's a lot of other things to consider. So given that seven of those risk factors that I mentioned are dynamic, and criminal history is the only static one, yet we tend to put the most weight in criminal history, when does that become a problem? Well, it become a, becomes a problem when there are collateral consequences to criminal records. Uh, so as I mentioned before, I'm not somebody who thinks that people shouldn't be punished. I do think we should have a punishment focus in the country. You know, I do think that there's moral debts to pay to society. But what I tend to think of is, okay, punishment is supposed to be time limited. And what are the ways that punishment tends to perpetuate itself or last beyond what your sentence was? So collateral consequences is the idea that there are consequences of a criminal record that are not directly imposed by the court, but are byproducts of the creation and availability of a criminal record. And these consequences tend to, uh, these collateral consequences engender negative consequences or negative outcomes for an individual beyond the sentence imposed upon them. 
And they can be uh, viewed as a form of, of sort of perpetual punishment, right? So here's this idea, hey, you completed your sentence and you repaid your debt to society, but is that really true? And so I'm gonna go through five of these collateral consequences. So one of them is voter disenfranchisement. So this one, I, I feel like sometimes gets overstated, but it's still an important thing to think about. So it's this idea that you're curtailing or voiding a constitutional right. Like everybody has the right to vote, but if, particularly if you have a felony offense, you might be disenfranchised, right? You might be prevented from voting. Now that might be only during the time that you're incarcerated. It might be uh, like actually incarcerated. It might be during any time that you're under sort of criminal justice supervision. So if you're on probation or parole and it varies by jurisdiction, right? The duration of, of curtailment varies number one by jurisdiction, but number two by circumstance. So some jurisdictions only have it for certain classes of offenses. Um, they have it for different periods of time, like some you might never be able to get it back. Um, most of them you can. And I think that's an important move. We, we have recognized like, hey, maybe we should be able to restore people's voting rights, but it tends to be a cumbersome process um, and a very tedious process. So a lot of people don't go through that process. So there is um, this idea of voter disenfranchisement and sort of giving up your connection to civic society. Employment's another big place. So many employers conduct background checks. Now, technically, you're not supposed to deny somebody a job unless their conviction is related to their job duties. So somebody convicted of robbery, you probably don't want to give them a job where they're handling money, right? Like that makes intuitive sense. But if it's somebody who has something else, a DUI or, or something unrelated to that particular job duty, you don't necessarily want that to reflect on somebody's ability to hold certain jobs forever. But the fact of the matter is that even if the, even if the uh, conviction isn't related to your job duties, a lot of people are denied jobs just because they have a criminal record, right? So are there under pretenses? There's any number of reasons somebody might say they didn't want to give you a job, or it's because they didn't check the box, right? They didn't report a criminal history because they were worried about not getting a job. And that's very valid for an employer to terminate someone because they say, well, hey, you lied to us. Now, there have been some attempts to try to mitigate this, um, notably sort of the ban the box movement, um, but even that can have unintended consequences. So I haven't delved into this research in a little while, but one of the things that they did find was, hey, if you don't, um, if you don't have people report on their criminal history, sometimes employers are gonna find sort of proxy measures, right? And it tends to be race related. So what race does this person sound like? And you know, it ends up becoming a proxy measure. So it is, you know, it's a, it's a well-intentioned policy, but it can have some unintended consequences. Another thing is uh, access to education. So the majority of higher education institutions in the U.S. inquire about criminal history in some way. And what you'll notice is there's a lot more application attrition, a lot less follow through with people who aren't applying if somebody has a criminal record, likely tied to stigma. The other thing is that convictions, particularly drug convictions, can result in forfeiting federal student aid. So, you, you know, forfeiting your ability to even access higher education. You might also be ineligible for public assistance. So uh, one notable thing is that a drug conviction can impact your ability to, to qualify for temporary assistance for needy families. Now, many states have modified this ban. You know, states can opt out of it. They can, they can choose to modify how they want to approach that. Um, but there are still plenty of states who do have restrictions on that. Um, so you can't access sort of maybe what could be vital uh, social resources to help you get back on your feet. It can also impact whether or not you're selected for public housing. So public housing authorities might screen for individuals with criminal convictions. 
people don't want to live next to somebody who has a criminal conviction. So they might be sort of impacted from, from having stable housing. And the last collateral consequence I'll talk about is that of social stigma. And you know, I think there's been very positive movement in the US about criminal records and, and, and what we attribute to people who have criminal records. But again, this is another perceptual theory. So a lot of ex-offenders perceive judgment from peers and their community members. And even just that perception in and of itself can, can yield poor social adjustment. And importantly, it seems to impact people regardless of the severity of their record. So whether or not you have a misdemeanor or a felony, what grade of felony you have, there is this perceived stigma um, among individuals who have criminal records. Now I'm gonna to toss in my two cents and then I'm gonna sort of ask for some feedback and I'll answer any questions that might come up. Going through the principles of punishment that I mentioned earlier, um, when I think about this, criminal records don't, they don't really serve principles of punishment, right? Even sort of the most draconian one, which is retribution, sort of the just desserts theory, those punishments are time limited, right? We recognize, I mean, unless you're on, um, unless you're convicted for life or you're on pro, uh, parole for life, but those punishments are supposed to be time limited. At some point you've paid your debt, you know, when you hit this date that we, that we put out there. But collateral consequences last beyond that, right? So there's some, there's some form of punishment that's being imposed on you perpetually, even after you've served out your full sentence. Um, it also undermines reentry and, and also sort of undermines deterrence, right? So this is a cartoon that just talks about people going right from jail to the unemployment line, right? Like not being able to get jobs, maybe not being able to get stable housing. And when I think about the three things that are sort of integral to reentry, it's jobs, stable housing, and social support. And I just walk through the collateral consequence, you know, five collateral consequences that all undermine those things, right? Not eligible for public housing. Um, this is particularly notable for sex offenders because there's sort of um, a lot of restrictions in terms of where they can live. Additional social stigma because they have to reveal where it is that, you know, what their crime was and that they're a sex offender. And one of the things that you might notice with sex offenders is the rate of sexual recidivism is pretty low, but the rate of general recidivism among sex offenders is actually pretty high. And so this is this idea that because people are having trouble reintegrating into society, they get in other types of trouble that isn't even related to their original criminal conviction. Um, so if we're thinking about making the community safer, reducing recidivism, we wanna make sure that we have good reentry planning, but some of these collateral consequences undermine reentry. So there have been some efforts to sort of reduce collateral consequences. One has been sort of expungement and redaction of records, which is a judicial remedy. Um, often this can be cumbersome and expensive. There are some states that have sort of adopted these clean slate laws, which um, seal certain types of records so that you don't have to reveal them. Um, so there's been some positive movement in that direction, um, but they're still not that easy to get. You can apply for a pardon, which is an executive remedy. So either the governor or the president, but again, that can be very cumbersome um, and can take years. And often a lot of those petitions are denied. Some states um, issue what we call certificates of recovery. So this is issued by a state to individuals who have met certain rehabilitative standards, right? And it's sort of this idea of, of giving more context to a person, like, hey, this is in this person's past, but we're now deeming them to have overcome a lot of those challenges. Um, and then the last thing that sort of big policy lately is what we call offense downgrades, right? So maybe you're charged, you're convicted of a felony, but you comply with a bunch of conditions of supervision, and then your conviction can get downgraded. 
Now, this is important because there are plenty of people who see um, criminal records and sort of, well, I mean, that guy's only got a misdemeanor. That's not that big a deal versus a felony where people can get sort of more, more squeamish. Um, so there has been some positive movement. A lot of these things aren't either aren't widely implemented or you have to go through sort of cumbersome levels of bureaucracy. Um, so there's still a lot of room for improvement in terms of uh, reducing collateral consequences of criminal convictions. So with that, I wanna get people's reactions to all that, um, get some thoughts on sort of what might be done, what you've seen in your own work in terms of repeat offenders and what might be getting in their way. And I'm happy to answer any questions that, that individuals might have or address any criticism that people might have. Because you know, I, this tends to be sort of a somewhat controversial uh, topic, I think. But for me, I, I always think about it in terms of what does it do to reentry and how does it undermine people from not recidivating, recidivating. And I might stop sharing just so that I can see.